Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. I normally say hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast, but I haven't done it for the last few weeks, so I can't say that. And um, thank you very much to all those of you who tweeted uh, asking where the podcast was, it kind of disappeared. I was thrilled to read the tweets, uh, but it made me feel kind of guilty as well that I wasn't doing the podcast, so I was both thrilled and felt terrible. Anyway, it's back, so I've been really busy uh, in these crazy times that we are living through, but it's it's back, here it is, the weekly podcast, so uh, thank you for waiting. And today I thought I'd look, if it's okay with all of you, not that you've got much choice in the matter because you're just listening, you're not in a theatre or stage event where you can influence what happens directly. I think the most significant thing that's happened this week was not the budget, though the budget was uh, interesting in ways that I think will have quite a profound effect on the political debate, much less so on the state of the economy. But the most significant thing I found this week was um, a news night on, I think it was, no, Tuesday night, where um, Evan Davis, in his last show for Newsnight, interviewed George Osborne at length. And then there was a panel, some of you may well have seen it, of which Polly Toynbee was one of the panellists. And I think it was a television event of great significance. It was wonderful theatre but it has much wider significance than that. It's all about the assumptions we carry with us as we view the politics in its current febrile and complex state. For those of you who didn't see it, and most of you will have done because it's kind of trended on Twitter and YouTube and everything, is um, after a long interview with George Osborne, who is a good interviewee, he is discursive, engaged, witty, to some extent, self-aware. Evan Davis turned to the panel, and he turned first, I think, to Polly Toynbee. And Evan Davis said something really interesting and, I think, important and illuminating. He said to Polly, probably of this panel, the other panellists were from the sort of Corbynista wing of the Labour Party and UKIP. But Evan Davis said... Polly Toynbee, you are now, given the current events, politically close to George Osborne. An extraordinary question, but I think one that shows quite vividly BBC thinking about politics in a way I'll come on to explain. And Polly Toynbee just <laughs> went for George Osborne. She didn't go for Evan Davis, but went for George Osborne. Provoked, I think by her wider view of George Osborne's record as a Chancellor, but also by any kind of assumption that because of Brexit, where both Osborne and Polly Toynbee are Remainers, there is a coming together of the two of them politically. And she described him, in my view, absolutely accurately as the most right-wing chancellor in post-war British politics and one who, for ideological reasons, reconfigured the state and for absolute right-wing kind of turbocharged Thatcherite ideas kind of shaped that period between 2010 and 2016. And she kind of described his, what I think she called despicable demonization of the poor and so on, which was a deliberate act of George Osborne's to the extent that 
he drove Ian Duncan Smith crazy when Ian Duncan Smith was in charge of welfare policy in that government. And here again is an interesting situation because in the way things are perceived, certainly within the BBC and more widely, Ian Duncan Smith is seen as the sort of rabid, rabid right winger and George Osborne the modernising centrist. But it was Duncan Smith demanding more money for welfare and Osborne in speeches announcing huge cuts, not all of them implemented, because he thought this was popular above all else. And she went for him. And it was a good bit of theatre, but it was much more than that. Because the way we misread the politics of Cameron and Osborne, I think, kind of leads to all kinds of other distortions. Certainly, a lot of people I know in the BBC think that, just automatically, that kind of to assert that Cameron and Osborne were on the centre ground and modernisers is almost a form of impartiality because to them it is an objective truth. And that's why Evan, who is one of the most brilliant and thoughtful of the presenters and understands economics, which is miraculous, that's why he just assumed a closeness between Osborne's politics and Polly Toynbee's politics. But actually, it is a fundamental misreading. And it's true of others. Laura Coombsberg, who again is a brilliant political editor, and I don't buy into this idea that she's willfully biased and all that stuff. But she tweeted a quote from the Osborne interview. We don't win by being like UKIP as we were at the last election or by aping Corbyn's policy, something along those lines. She didn't make any comment because you can't at the BBC, but it was there as if they were words of wisdom, but they are a distortion of the recent past. For example, the Conservative manifesto at the 2017 election was well to the left of anything that Cameron and Osborne proposed in their various manifestos. The 2017 Tory election manifesto remains a fascinating document. Large sections of it are a defence of the state and state intervening in markets and as a benevolent force in the provider of services. Now, the reason the Tories did terribly in that election was not because of that. That, I think, was the right thing. It was beginning to break away from the Thatcherite spell that has been cast over this party for so long. But Theresa May never explained or made sense of the shift, and um, it was all done too quickly in the middle of an election campaign. But that document, or parts of it, could be a model of a revival of the Conservative Party and finally a breakaway from Thatcherism. So it wasn't on the whole, a shift to the right, the Tory proposition, or the Theresa May's proposition in 2017. It was a shift to the left. Whereas Cameron and Osborne, who are seen as these modernising one-nation centrists within the BBC and at the Times newspaper and elsewhere, and there are close links, I think, between parts of the BBC and parts of the Times newspaper, not least in the former editor James Harding becoming 
head of news and current affairs. The assumption there is that the Cameron Osborne thing was to the left and May has moved the Tory party to the right. May is more socially conservative and more a product of a kind of 1950s culture. But some of her thinking about economics and the role of the state move her well to the left of Cameron and Osborne, who were uh, at times utterly committed to Thatcherism, reworked in terms of its presentation. I remember Oliver Letwin describing the whole Cameron project as reheated Thatcherism. And actually his phrase at the beginning of his leadership, clever phrase, there is such a thing as society, but it's not the same as the state, sounded like a refutation of Thatcher's comment that there's no such thing as society, but it was actually a total endorsement of it because she was arguing that there were other agencies apart from the state to bind people together. So it was actually as anti-state as Thatcher while sounding different. And Osborne's decision at the crucial point, the 2008 financial crash, this epoch-changing event, to propose real-term spending cuts in response was deeply ideological. He was the only mainstream figure from anywhere, actually in the Western world, proposing real-terms cuts in response to that crash. The Bush administration pumped money in. Merkel and others, not known to be profligate spenders, agreed to a fiscal stimulus coordinated by Brown and Obama on Obama's glittering honeymoon period. But Osborne and Cameron opted for real-term spending cuts as a proposition. They were in opposition then, but carried it out when they got elected in 2010 with um, the backing, naively, of uh, Nick Clegg, whose politics was by no means fully formed in terms of being a sophisticated politician. He had been an MP for one parliament. But his liberalism, too, in inverted commas, took him well to the right in terms of some elements of economic policymaking. Now, these positions can be argued for and justified. I don't agree with them. Uh, I think that uh, historians will look back at that period and see it as a disastrous turning point, uh, 2010 to now, and the wrong response to the financial crash. But there is an argument for it that you respond to a crisis of that sort by greatly cutting public spending and attempt to balance the books, even though balancing the books didn't happen. But to pretend that that policy is progressive or centrist or modernizing is absurd. You have to defend it from the position of being on the ideological right. But because they were engaging and were in a constant dialogue with columnists and BBC people and were friends of senior BBC managers and columnists, a narrative formed that this was modern conservatism, uh, also because they introduced gay marriage, this great protective shield that they cite to show how progressive and modern they were. But they were, I think, the final call for 
Thatcherism when clearly Thatcherism had been fundamentally challenged by that 2008 crash. And until people at the BBC and others understand that, they don't have to say whether they agree or disagree with that ideological right-wing position. But until they do, it kind of presents a whole distorted picture of politics. Because obviously, if you regard Cameron and Osborne as on the centre ground, Labour's 2017 manifesto becomes as ridiculously and absurdly left-wing as you could possibly get because it's so far away from the propositions and ideas of the Cameron and Osborne era. But if you recognise that the Cameron and Osborne policies were rooted on that sort of Thatcherite right, one last charge of Thatcherism, even though it was the assumptions of Thatcher-Reaganism of 1980s that brought about the crash, it kind of gives a different perspective. Again, you, you don't endorse, if you're at the BBC, Corbynism, but it doesn't seem quite as extreme as a response to the Cameron and Osborne era. And May, too, is placed in a slightly different place. Instead of saying, oh, the Tories have gone way to the right uh, after Cameron and Osborne's noble centrist project, you see that in some respects she is to the left of Cameron and Osborne. Brexit, of course, is a great distortion. It's a project that divides both parties and has allowed some... Evan Davis tweeted in response to some of us who were observing, it was rather curious, that he thought Polly Toynbee and George Osborne would be close... Evan said that, well, the, the great dividing line in politics now is open versus closed. This is an echo of the Tony Blair line. It's just not the case. Open versus closed is part of the debate around the European Union, as it has been a debate within parties and between parties for centuries. Corn laws, tariff reform, it's always been around as a, a subject of contention. But it enables people to assume it's a kind of form of impartiality because it's not left versus right. But all the big central debates remain left versus right. The size of the state, the role of the state, public service reform and how best to deliver them. Fiscal conservatism versus a more progressive Keynesian approach to tax and spend. The um, great and fundamental divide in British general elections for decades. All these are placed people either on the left or right and it should be obvious that Polly Toynbee is on the left and George Osborne on the right and the blurring has distorted politics. So I hope everybody at the BBC and elsewhere watches that exchange and whether they agree with Osborne or agree with Polly Toynbee accept that the key divide is left versus right not this fuzzy oh these nice people they're the kind of modernizing centrists. The other interesting element which kind of feeds into this is the budget itself. It is hard to see pre-Brexit, uh, what impact, if any, this budget will have on the longer term. 
But it clearly is aimed at doing two things. One, of course, is Brexit-related. Hammond, May and others are wanting to frame an argument. Vote for the deal if they get a deal or else. If we get a deal, they're going to say, look at this deal dividend, double dividend, Hammond said. And if you vote it down, public services won't get the money that could be allocated to them, etc., etc. And the other is to attempt to kill off the essence of the Labour attack that austerity has failed by declaring, from the Conservative point of view, that austerity is over, it has worked, and now it's time to move on. Now, this is interesting. They had to do it because they weren't ever going to balance the books anyway. One of the other great chutzpah elements of the uh, Tory approach to austerity is that they entered two elections in 2010 and 2015, pledged to balance the books in a parliament. They failed up to 2015, but just made the pledge again at the 2015 election, even though there was absolutely no sign they were going to do it then. But it was a trick that the media danced to because it then made Labour say, well, what are you going to do about the deficit? And by the way, the framing of the whole deficit argument was too readily accepted by the BBC. I'm, I'm not going to go on about the BBC any longer, but I mean, every single political interview was, what are you going to do about the deficit? What are you going to do about the deficit? And the moment... The Tories, and this isn't deliberate bias, it's just about what is the fashionable narrative of the moment and, and following it. The moment the Tories stop talking about the deficit, which incidentally is as ill-defined as quite a few other terms that are bandied around in politics from modernisation to weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but the moment the government stopped talking about the deficit, it ceased to be a subject of any interview. And suddenly Labour people were under much less pressure to say, oh, well, we'll cut this and we'll cut that, but maybe not as much as their mad fantasy set of interviews that took place for about seven years because the deficit was not going to be wiped out anyway. But anyway, they've now stopped doing that and they've therefore, on one level, it appears blocked off a labour line of attack and they have to some very limited extent uh, moved on to labour terrain by putting some more money nowhere near enough into the NHS but not much else. There was a very interesting figure I think from the IFS's assessment of um, the role of the state and the divisions within the state that pretty soon the NHS will overwhelmingly dominate public spending and that the other areas where the state should have total or considerable responsibility are just being shrunk and therefore the private sector will have to move in. And that is a massive imbalance and a huge story. I wonder whether this will change the dynamics of the political argument greatly. The Labour leadership are not good, but they're really poor at framing arguments around policies. They announce policies as if the explanation for them are obvious. But actually, if the Labour leadership had that kind of framing skill, they would frame their arguments as saying, look, the Brexit referendum 
talked about control and being left behind and all this kind of thing. Our policies address that. We're going to give people worried about powerlessness at work, greater control. Uh, we're going to give people greater control in terms of the accountability of railways and so on. But they're useless at framing arguments. But if they were better, I think they could take on quite easily the conservative attempts to move on to some of their terrain. The other thing is that I always remember Nigel Lawson, uh, after he had ceased to be Chancellor, but he was on the back benches and it was in the final phase of the 87 to 92 Parliament and John Major had become Prime Minister. And Labour was still miles ahead in the polls. But Lawson said the Tories will win the next election because the party that wins the battle of ideas in the end wins elections. Now, it is a huge exaggeration to say Labour is winning the battle of ideas. As I say, partly because they're not very good at framing them. And I mean, I think John McDonnell is a brilliant and interesting political figure. Uh, but Jeremy Corbyn is largely in invisible and anyway is not a framer of arguments. But um, there is no doubt that in the battle of ideas, the terrain has moved leftwards since uh, 2015. And as I say, the 2017 Tory manifesto, election manifesto, marked that shift to the left. And here you have a small state Thatcherite like Philip Hammond feeling compelled to highlight the benevolent consequences of state funding and action. That too, I think, marks an interesting shift to the left. Now, if a party of the left is smart and nimble-footed, and the battle of ideas is moving to the left, that should be good news for Labour. But let's see how it all falls out post-Brexit. But the idea that the Conservatives are automatically going to benefit by beginning implicitly to speak some of the language of the left of centre, which has always believed in the benevolent power of the state, even though... In the New Labour era, they were too scared to talk about the state because of the echoes of the 1970s and so on. How times have changed. You know, there's been a movement back now to analysing what government should do. Now, if they can articulate that with the policies that, to go with it, Labour will be in a strong position post-Brexit. But we've got Brexit to come. And that will dominate the next few weeks. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about it today because I've started doing the podcast again. And I'm bound to be talking about it quite a lot over the next few weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Some of you very kindly tweeted as well about um, the series I've just done, which was on the BBC iPlayer, a series of talks about prime ministers we never had, from Rab Butler to the Miliband brothers. Uh, there are nine episodes, of Dennis Healy, Michael Heseltine, they're all, they're all in there. They're now on YouTube, if you didn't see them, and they are, I think, gradually going off the BBC iPlayer. 
so if you go to Steve Richards Politics, you'll see nine episodes, whole Netflix-style box set of the prime ministers we never had. And then there's a series of six on modern prime ministers, from Harold Wilson to Theresa May. I think actually it goes up to David Cameron. I'm writing a book and putting Theresa May in as well. I'm writing a book on modern prime ministers and the lessons of leadership, which um, many constant factors in the uh, rise and fall of those prime ministers. And then there's also a series on turning points in modern politics. Uh, so there's, if you go to the list section in Steve Richards' Politics on YouTube, how many does that make? There are 15, 21, 21 episodes of different uh, talks on various aspects of uh, modern politics which are unscripted, kind of make them conversational, like this podcast, for good or for bad. So that's that. And uh, the next live rock and roll politics show is at uh, King's Place in London on December the 17th. It's currently sold out, but uh, do check on their website because they get returns. And I think they're going to try and put some more seats in. People are killing for tickets. You know, they're going, it's like, uh, you know, Rolling Stones uh, coming back to London again. Tickets are... Yeah, going for thousands I've become a fantasist anyway look thank you very much for listening and for your patience but it's back thanks so much for listening to Rock and Roll Politics the weekly podcast